Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, your host. It is the ed- Sunday edition for September the 5th, 2021. Thanks for being along. It's been kind of a busy week, but a good week for us. We had some good news. We uh, will finished up all his therapy. So all the therapy he's been doing since he got home in May after the traumatic brain injury and everything, all the occupational therapy and the speech therapy and the physical therapy, he's finished with all of that. He graduated out of that. We're still doing a lot of things at home, uh, and he's staying very active. And, and, and I mean, he's 100%. Let's just say that. He's 100% of where he was before all this happened. So we're rejoicing in that and God's healing of him um, and his continual strengthening of him and, and, and growing him into a, a new creation. We're, we're thankful for that. Also, this week on... Um, um, Thursday, we went to the eye doctor because he's had problems with his left eye because there's a drop of blood in the vitreous behind the eye, and that will dissipate and go away. If it doesn't over whatever period of time, then they can go in and do surgery and drain that out. They don't want to do that. There's no reason to do it right now. There's there's nothing that's forcing them to do that, so we're waiting. But the good news is it's considerably better, so we're seeing huge improvement on that uh, in every single way. It's observable. Uh, by the doctor in, in two or three different ways that he that he looked at it. So that's really good news. And then later that same day, just a little bit later, in fact, he was cleared by the neurosurgeon, says you can do anything you want. There are no restrictions on you anymore. So he's able to do everything that he wants to do and is able to do. So that's great news. I mean, obviously, you take it easy as you rebuild everything. But, you know, we've pushed pretty hard, to be honest with you, and uh, to get back to full strength and health. So, um humongous progress great stuff so we had a good week it's been uh we've been busy around here with with all our animals and and they're not pets exactly but but we feed all kinds of things we feed at least four fully grown hen turkeys plus now three chicks that one of them had uh, as well as at least um four deer three bucks and a doe that we one doe that we know of also, I looked out earlier, there's a groundhog out there. I feed multiple raccoons at night We have and, and so many birds that it's impossible to count. So it's been busy. Uh, while we had dogs, we didn't have all these things. But for the last couple of years, we haven't had any dogs. And so the, the wildlife has proliferated uh, around here. We don't know what else is here. I mean, we see bears up where we live sometimes. And uh, there are rabbits up here. There's all kinds of stuff. So anyway... Um, it's been a good week. I, I feel like it's been uh, productive for the most part. Um, it's, you know, obviously here in America, we're going through a lot of different things. The the, the, the events in Afghanistan certainly are, are casting a great pall over everything, as well as the sort of the resurgence of COVID with the Delta variant hanging over everything. And um, there's just so much uncertainty, I guess, continuing in the world. And and it's been a tough way, I think, for all of us to live for the last 18 months with this. And But it's there, there's further and further an increasing division in the world. Um, and that, that division is over so many different issues. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? What about the vaccine? What about ivermectin? What about what? And it just goes on and on with the COVID thing. And then the political spectrum has been such a mess. It's unbelievable. And, and nobody can... Um, sort of evaluate things from a neutral position because we we have our political stake dug in and so we're evaluating things based on a lens of our side and if there's one thing i think dramatically uh wrong in america today and and, and the only reason i say in america is because i don't know about the rest of the world but the one thing i would say that is really wrong in america today is this the notion of othering 
And, and what we do is we other people. That's the other. And we dehumanize. I mean, I saw something um, this week that, that over the – there's a, a law in Texas that's just passed that says that after six weeks you can't do abortions. And so I saw a guy who is actually um, – a blue check mark on Twitter, somebody that that has a name known well enough. He's a, a defense expert and other things. He, he, he undertook to say, uh, well, this will increase the population of Down syndrome people in places like Texas and any place else that undertakes such a, an abortion restriction as this because you can't test for things like Down syndrome uh, prior to six weeks. Or you know, it's got to be considerably after that before you can actually do that. And so what his point was, was to say, you should abort these babies. I mean, that's the classic example of othering. Anybody who is not perfect, anybody who is not like me, we can just abort those people. I mean, it's, it's a demonic, monstrous take on things. But it, but it's not the only one, certainly. There, there are many, many of those kinds of attitudes out there about othering people and therefore dehumanizing. I had a conversation with a guy at the gym this week that just absolutely shocked me. I didn't know this guy. I still don't know him and I don't want to know him any better than I do at this moment. He began to talk to me about the sort of the uh, superiority, really, I mean, just to be honest with you, of the Anglo-Saxon race. Um, he understands that, that all races have contributions to make to the world, but the Anglo-Saxons have a particular Thing. And, and then, you know, okay, sure, I get that. I'm, I'm cool with that. But then we kept talking, and the longer we talked, the more it went in a really bad direction because along the way, he began to tell me that the people in Africa, for instance, those people, about 19% of their DNA, we don't know where it comes from. Well, I have no earthly idea whether that's true or not. It was absolutely news to me. I've certainly never heard anything like that before. But the, the problem with that statement and, and what he's trying to do with it is it dehumanizes those people because they're, well, they're only 81% human because we don't know where the other 19% comes from. And that's the problem with othering. We're dehumanizing. We've dehumanized Down syndrome patients and said they're not fit to live. They shouldn't be allowed to live. These these If we knew that, we would just abort them. When when Suzanne was pregnant with, with our first child, Pelham, for instance, we, we wanted to get an amniocentesis done because she was an at-risk pregnancy, and we wanted to know if this child was going to be okay. We asked our neighbors to pray for us, and they said yes. And then the next day, they knocked on the door and said, can we talk? I said, sure. And, and they came in, and, and what they said was is that abortion's wrong. I said, absolutely. Agree with you 100%. And, I, and I'm just baffled by this. And he said, well, you know, why are you getting an amniocentesis done if you're not planning to abort the child? I said, because I want to be the best father that I can possibly be to my child. And, and if I know in advance there's a problem, then I can do all the research necessary to know how to be the best father possible. But the only reason they could imagine we would have done that was to abort the child if it weren't 100 percent. And I was just devastated that they would have thought that. But but they had a reason to think it, not because of me, not because of Suzanne, but because, well, that's what people do. And so the, I, I get that. But, but that's the othering problem. And, and, and we do it a lot, right? I mean, and it's the thing that Jesus says don't do when he says love your enemies. Don't other your enemy. It's what happened in Rwanda. In 1994, in the genocide, there were 800,000 people killed, and it was a tribal, quote-unquote, 
kind of a thing, and it was between the Hutu and the Tutsi. And so there were 800,000 people killed in about a 90-day period. I mean, it's a, it, with machetes. I mean, you, you can't get any more up close and personal for murder than that. And what allowed that to happen were, were for a long period of time there had been teaching, even in the church, frankly, that the, the Tutsi— who had been sort of put in place by, first by the Belgians and then uh, uh, held up by the French over a long period of time, about 50 years. And that they had been put into uh, leadership positions, and, and so then leadership positions had become strictly only for the Tutsi over that period of time. Right, so um, they the the Hutu were denied places in government. They were denied places in universities and things like that. Denied any kind of higher education at all. And so he kept them subservient. Well, there was a myth that said that these the Tutsi were born to reign and rule. They were they were descendants from the Garden of Eden, and and so they were superior to the Hutu. And so, well, you know, hey, if you hear that long enough and it benefits you, you're likely to buy into it, right? Um, so it, it's it's the ultimate privilege. And so ultimately in 1964, the French decided, you know what, it's not really fair to do this. We're going to change everything now and we're going to go to uh, universal elections. Well, about 89 percent of the people were Hutu. And so they had been subjugated long enough. And so you can imagine if you have an eight to one advantage, what you're likely to do. It's not likely to be pretty because you're likely to have been angry and you have suppressed or repressed all kinds of anger. Uh, that you were not allowed to vent, and now they did. And so the genocide actually kind of begins in, in the early 60s. And, and most Rwandese at that time, most of the Tutsi Rwandese fled during that period of time and went to neighboring countries. Many went to Uganda, but there were also others in Burundi and Tanzania. And so in uh, later, you know, it, it, when Idi Amin was overthrown, many of the people who led that charge in Uganda were um, Rwanda Tutsi exiles. And so the quid pro quo was is that, that if we get you your country back, then you'll help us get our country back. And so in 1994, as that military force become, begins to come into Rwanda, then, then the, the reaction was to let's slaughter them and, just, and they can come and find this country empty. But but it was it based on othering, and this whole thing had been based on othering. There had there been no evidence of this sort of this tribalism prior to white people coming in and setting this whole thing in stone based on physical characteristics. It had always been you could you could be a Hutu or a Tutsi depending on whether you own ten cows or not. If you own fewer than ten, you were a Hutu. If you own more than that, you were a Tutsi. And it, so it's wealth, really. It was sort of a, a financial class system. But anyway, so then we get to this place where now, um, with this division, and you can bet there was a certain kind of othering that happened prior to 1964, looking down from Tutsi to Hutu. But now that they had the majority, it was it was the other way around. And so the othering includes things like, well, they're devils with tails. Or they began just refer to them as cockroaches. And the dehumanization of other people is what ultimately leads to things like genocide. But it, but it leads to insidious other places first. Right? Because if you're not fully human, then I don't have to treat you like that. I don't even have to think of you that way. I can, I can relegate you to some category that I can despise, and it's perfectly all right for me to despise you, but it's not. And that's what Jesus says. And as Christians, we can't let ourselves fall into that trap. The lessons for today are going to talk about that very much. So in the first lesson is Proverbs 22, and it's, it's like six random verses, 1 through 2, 8 to 9, and 22 to 23, and it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. 
the rich and the poor meet together, the Lord is the maker of them all. I mean, that's the, that's the point, right, is, is that the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So, so ultimately, we need to take this, this idea upwards, and we need to remember that we are all created in the image of God and that we are, they are subject to Him. And so the only other in this picture is God. We're just people. We might have different opinions, we might have different color skin, we might have different abilities, we might have different interests, but, but we are all created in the image of God. It all begins right there. The only other in the entire universe is Him. And that's why Paul says that we, we don't war against flesh and blood, but, it, but we, we fight these spiritual battles with spiritual powers, and as long as we continue to fight flesh and blood, there's going to be this othering thing. That happens, and we've got to get over that as Christians. So here, the, the other ring that's pointed out here in Proverbs is the rich and poor meet together. They're just same, but the Lord is the maker of them all. So he is the other. We are all created in his image. So we're, because we're different, what we're supposed to recognize in, in that is, is that the love of God is spread abroad. And, and it's idealized and actuated in the other i can't fully actualize that i need you to show me something about god that's unique to you as a person or to you as a race that that's important is is that the races each have things to offer that that are meant to express the kingdom of god and only together do we see that happen and that's what we see in revelation with every tribe tongue and language language and nation represented there among the elect it's it's because we all bring different things to the table I heard Tony Evans talking about this the other day. He says, he, he says, you know, don't tell me that I have to listen to country and Western music. I can celebrate the fact that you like it, but don't tell me I have to like it. And, and that's right. We, the cultures bring different things to the table. The ultimate other is God, and we can only know that other through the fullness of the expression of God in his creation, those created in his image. And, and so then the writer goes on to say, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the road of his fury will, rod of his fury will fail. What we can hope for is that happens quickly. If you're sowing injustice, it says they'll reap calamity and the rod of the fury will fail. And, and we can just pray and hope that that happens quickly. I mean, that's what happens in, in Hitler's Germany, right? Is is that that he's talking about a thousand year reign? Well, it didn't last that long, but it didn't last fifteen minutes either. And there was a lot of othering going on there. Those othering, th those who were other, were dehumanized, and that's how you get concentration camps for Jews and homosexuals and all kinds of other people or other groups that are unlike, well, the Aryan nation. That, that there was this purity thing that was happening, and it's happened all throughout history. We're going to look at some of that in the gospel, actually, today. So what we can hope is this happens quickly, but we know that it lasts longer than you want it to. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So a bountiful eye would indicate that, that you don't see scarcity and you don't see limitation. During the whole Y2K thing, for instance, I had a guy who was a member of the church that I was serving in. I was a, a, an assistant at that time. And this guy was obsessed with Y2K. And I asked him one time, what have you done for Y2K today? It was kind of my refrain with him. He never seemed to get that I didn't, you know, 
agree with him. But at any rate, that day he had bought two 357 Magnums. I said, what's the point of having the 357 Magnums? And his response was, well, those people, once this happens, if people get hungry, they'll, they'll come and, and they'll want your food. And I said, well, so what you're telling me is you're going to shoot them? He said, yeah. I said, do you really think Jesus would say, blow them to kingdom come? Wouldn't he rather say feed them? And, and that's going on today with preppers, too. I mean, it's all over the place. And if you're a prepper, hey, I'm sorry, but but you need to evaluate that in light of what Jesus would have you do. And so that but that's what a bountiful eye is, is to see. I don't see scarcity. I see plenty. And therefore, I'm going to share with you. He says, don't rob the poor because he's poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. Don't don't judge these people because they're poor or they're afflicted. For the Lord will please their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So they're judging people based on, on non-immutable characteristics, for instance. And so we have a problem there. You know, you're judging people because they're poor. You're judging people because they're afflicted. Uh-uh, no, you got this all wrong. You've missed it completely and entirely if you're judging on those kinds of characteristics. And that's exactly what we see in the gospel today, which is Mark 7, verses 24 to 37. It says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is sort of north and east of Israel. So he's outside the land. He's outside of Israel at this point. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. Yet even there, isn't that even there is John's words, yet he could not be hidden. So he's outside the land, outside the place where the Jews are seeking after him as Messiah, but his fame has gone before him, even to the place up in Tyre and Sidon. It's there. And says, so then he goes to this house and wants to hide there, but he can't do that. Immediately, I mean, I don't mean hide, like playing hide and seek. I mean, he's just trying to fly under the radar. Immediately, because it's Mark, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So his fame and renown had preceded him into this place. Now you have to understand the attitude of the Jews towards those people, those others up there. They're pagans. They worship these foreign gods. And and no, we don't have anything to do with them because we'll be tainted and we'll be made unclean by any kind of sort of connection we have with them. And so we're going to avoid going to those places. So that that's where he is. So she, this woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit comes and falls at Jesus's feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, a Syrophoenician woman would have truly, not just uh, in Jewish lore, have been part of the Canaanites who were driven out of the land. So they, they would have been completely unclean to have had contact with them. Those are the people God made us expel from the land and destroy utterly. And she begged, and, and that that attitude persisted to that day, and it persisted all through the time of the early churches. The, the problem Paul has, for instance, in Galatia is, is to say, stop othering people, because you're looking at some of these people who are your brothers and sisters as second-class citizens. Maybe. Maybe even lower than second-class citizens. It would be like, you know, okay, this would be this unclean kind of an attitude thing that the Pharisees took towards everybody else, and that's the reason for this whole crazy hand-washing thing. You had to, If you ate a meal that had salt in it, you were required to wash your hands afterward, lest any of the salt from Sodom 
cling to you. That uncleanness that you might have contracted by even getting salt that came from somewhere else. This Gentile salt can contaminate you. And so, so this uncleanness is sort of like, well, what happens in India when they look at that caste that's just unclean? And therefore they can be ignored. It's the reason that we revere Mother Teresa is because she went to them. She went to the ultimate other and brought the gospel and brought the kingdom and brought love to those people. And so here, that's the, the kind of basic attitude that Jews would have had towards these people. So she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bed and throw it to the dogs. He's expressing a typical Jewish attitude towards this woman. It's just, you wouldn't say it. It was like the guy I was telling you about who made the comment about the Down syndrome kids. Like, this is the stuff you're actually not supposed to say in public. It's like the guy who told me about the Africans who are not really human, fully human. It's, these are the things you're not supposed to stay, say in public. And, and here Jesus just voices that. And so everybody in the room is going to be wildly uncomfortable. You can just see the disciples like, did he really say that? Holy moly, I was thinking it, but... So he, he said, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't care. <laughs> she, she doesn't even feel this thing. She's going to make an argument back to him that's based in truth, in, in not just in a metaphorical sense, but in a real sense. And she's going to say, okay, now apply that reality to the metaphor. And the metaphor is my daughter. And so she's desperate, so desperate that she's willing to deal with anything, but she doesn't lose her dignity there. She's willing to accept being called a dog, but she's asking still because she believes in him. And he said, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. It sounds like every other healing he did, right? I mean, she accepted this on faith in a remarkable way that she does this. And then, then he returns from the region of Tyre, and he goes through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So he didn't stop on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. He goes over the other side to the Decapolis. And the Decapolis, those were Hellenized cities, and the Pharisees hated them because they, they brought in uh, Greek and Roman values. And they saw that they were right there next to him. And so their concern was that, that those Hellenized values were corrupting their children. And so what do you do when something's corrupting your children? You blow that up bigger and bigger. You do exactly what Eve did with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, you say he, he commanded us not to eat of it or even touch it. And so there's a, there's a threat from these others. And the threat is that their culture might be better and more attractive than our culture is. And so we're going to become very protective. And, and, and the way to protect it best is to hate those people and to demonize those people. And that's exactly the reaction of the Pharisees towards the people in the Decapolis. And so they, they made the rules greater and greater. And they, they made the threat of those people greater and greater so that they demonized them so that nobody would go over there and have contact with those people, but Jesus does, right? So he goes to the Decapolis here, and the first thing that happens is they, those Hellenists, those Romans, those people who are pagans, they're, in fact, they're descendants of those Canaanites too, so they're all scared 
scum and you can't be around them. No, they believe too. They bring a man to Jesus who was deaf and had a speech impediment and begged him to lay his hands on him. And he took him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And they looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Epaphtha, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I think this is something I've said a million times. And that is, is that, you know, one of the things we've done in the church forever and ever is to encourage people to go out and evangelize, to tell people about Jesus. And we don't do it. We invite them to church instead. So what maybe what we ought to do, maybe the strategy ought to be changed in the church to say, don't go tell anybody this. Don't tell a soul, because every time we see Jesus do that in the gospel, what do they do? They go out and do exactly the opposite. Maybe that psychological strategy would work in the church, too. Stop telling people to evangelize, because they're not going to do it anyway. So tell them to go do it. I mean, tell them not to do it. No, 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 no. Don't tell anybody. It's a big secret. So so they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So not only are these people Syrophoenicians who are possessed with demons, but now we've also got these Decapolis pagans who have deafness and muteness. Well, all those things were considered to be unclean, and you're not allowed to come close to the temple if you have that, and you're not supposed to touch those people or go near those people because, well, they're unclean, and they're going to make you unclean if you touch them, and now you got a bigger problem. Now you can't go to synagogue. You can't go to worship, so they're going to contaminate you. Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. You're bringing something to them, that makes them better. There's a triumph here of God's kingdom is being brought, not my kingdom. I'm not threatened by by the other because I know the goodness of God's kingdom and the love of God's kingdom. And James, in this lesson today, in James 2, 1 to 17, he's talking about the other too. Listen, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in also, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, yeah, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? Haven't you othered people and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? I mean, really? I mean, we, we make heroes of people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and all these other people who, who they've gotten rich on your back, and particularly in the last year. And a half they've done that. But but we do the same thing. We tend to lift up those people who, who are the rich people. He says, if you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. He who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is the process of refusing to other someone and to treat them with the same love you treat yourself with. Is to see yourself as he sees you. You are a sinner just like everybody else. That's what Paul says. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. 
Don't think of yourself as better than anybody else, because in the eyes of God, the ultimate other, you are a sinner. But the good news is Jesus said God doesn't other you, even though you are. He came and took on flesh. The ultimate other became human in order to save humanity because of his great love for the other that he had created. That's the message of the gospel. God, who created you and who controls all things, who created all things, doesn't other you. He became like you in order to save you. He became like, well, us. We're all others. And the sooner we get over the idea that we're not, the better off we all will be. That's the ultimate mercy. God says, no, I'm not going to accept othering. I'm going to make you like me by becoming like you so that I can pour my spirit into those who believe in my son. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, that's why people don't like James, because they don't like to be called to good works. They don't, they don't like the idea that, that my faith needs to be more than just intellectual assent to a set of truths, propositional truths that I've accepted. No, it, it requires me to become like Jesus, right? It becomes me to become like everybody else and to see myself in that way and to make your problems my problems, to not just sympathize with you, not just say I feel badly about that, but to, to empathize with you, to extend myself on your behalf on the same way Jesus extended himself for us who without him were dying. In fact, we were dead in our transgressions. We had no hope in the world. But then the great other became one of us in order that we might become like him. And, and if he can love us as unlovable as we are, as sinful as we are, if he can love us to come and die for us, we can surely stop the process of othering other people. We can, we can actually identify with those others by, by understanding that, that they may be under a demonic delusion. They might actually think they're right like the Pharisees did, and Jesus says, no, you're not. We might be under a delusion. They might be under a delusion. But once we know Jesus, we can walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, and we can sympathize with Him in the same way that He sympathized with us. But, but, and that begins, honestly, here. It begins in the church. It begins, one of the great prayers of the church, and I'm going to close with this, one of the great prayers of the church that we have used in the Anglican world since the very first prayer book in 1548, um, I know there was one, in, the main one was in 1549, but there was a service, there was a, there was a, there was a liturgy that existed prior to the codification in the Book of Common Prayer. That This prayer goes back to that time, and there's no evidence that it was stolen. It might be sort of a collocation of other prayers, but that this one doesn't, it seems to have just sprung into being. And it was used um, at communion. And, it's, and it still is in some places, but if you go to a, an Episcopal or an Anglican church today, it most likely um, they're going to have to use write one in the, in the Episcopal prayer book. 
but because we don't accept this anymore. We don't accept this reality anymore. We say, well, it's condescending and it's, and it's too much, you know, humility and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and it's because we become humanists. You know, that's the real issue is that the exaltation of the human has taken place rather than than the exaltation of God. And so we don't like to see ourselves in this way. But but it's true. And and it's a prayer that I highly commend to you. And I'll put it in the notes to the show. And it's called the prayer of humble access. It says this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord. So we're recognizing that he is Lord. We also recognize him. He's merciful. But we don't presume we, we understand our place, trusting in our own righteousness. No, 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 no. We don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness because we don't have any. But in thy manifold and great mercies, it's because of your mercy that we're here, not because we deserve it. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. Do you hear those words? Those are the words of the Syrophoenician woman. Even the dogs can have the crumbs under the children's table. We're identifying with her. Because Jesus identified with us. We don't come in pride. We don't come in, come in here beating our breasts and talking about how great we are. No, no, no. We're not worthy. So much as gather up the crumbs under your table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. That we're recognizing the divine condescension was necessary for every single human being. It's important for us to do that. It's important for us to recognize who he is and who we are. But we are his children. And he invites us to that table. But we come because of the cross. And only because of the cross. Not because any of us in himself uh, or herself, in, in our whiteness or in our blackness or in our yellowness or whatever color we might be or, or in our uh, accomplishments or anything else we might take great pride in. No, we lay that aside and we say, we, all of us are not worthy. So much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. We, we react to his majesty and to his greatness by othering him, by using language. In fact, in the prayers that, that we, when we say things like we're not, we're, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. We use that language that liturgical language. We, we don't talk about thy and thine when we talk about other human beings. We only reserve those older forms for him because we're recognizing that he is different. But we're celebrating that difference mostly because we're celebrating also the incarnation of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus for our sake. He... he became other in order that we might become like him. God bless you this week. I hope that you have a blessed week and I hope no one others you. And I hope that if we ever, when you ever get an idea of othering someone, that God immediately puts a spike in your conscience so that you hear it in yourself and yet you quickly repent. If we do that as a church, if we do that as a people, the world will be so much better. And then the world will see there's a better kingdom. There's a better way.